Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. That is D-O-G-S. Yeah, we've got Rob, Dalm and Jean in the studio today to take you through what's been going on in the last week and also often we explore much larger ideas. And today we're going to explore probably one of the largest ideas that's going around the planet at the moment. And no, I'm not talking about the coronavirus. Um, I'm talking about the global privatisation. And the global privatisation not just of universities or TAFE colleges, but the global privatisation of basic education. You know, primary school education, um, secondary school education, which I'm sure everyone in Australia would realise now in the 21st century, secondary education is just basic. If you haven't got that going into this century, you've got serious problems. But, of course, global privatisation, that thing that has stuffed up so much on this planet up until this point, um, is now in the process of sinking his teeth into such a thing. Um, Jean, in her immensely now world-famous press release, number 829, will be talking about this directly because a book's been published and we'll actually be sharing with you, um, our very loyal listeners, some excerpts from that book. Um, you won't be listening to my tiresome voice or even Jean's, um, Jean's cutting voice which gets to the issues so quickly. Uh, we'll be listening to the sonorous tones of Dale who'll be reading some extracts from Diane Ravitch's book. And then I'll be taking you through some uh, the ins and outs of a fellow called Kirby, who was a High Court Justice until just, just, just recently, and who has ideas about what's going on more locally here in Australia when it comes to things like, I know it's a weird thing, but religious discrimination. Yes, we're going to have laws about that apparently. And um, Justice Kirby has some very interesting ideas, which I think are worth, again, sharing with you, our dear listeners. And we'll be finishing our program, of course, which is what I'm sure many people look forward to these days, which is our expose of a great state school, some great kids and great teachers doing great things in a great state school on this little island nation of ours, plus Tasmania. Anyway, but I think before we go any further, we should introduce Jean, because she's going to share with us her press release number 829. Thank you, Robert. Here it is, the global privatisation of basic education. Now, there's nothing new or indeed peculiar about the undermining and overt attacks upon public education in Australia by promoters of privatisation. Sometimes, however, it's just useful to stand back and get things in perspective. Currently... This privatisation, as Roberts pointed out, not of universities and TAFEs only, but of basic education, is a global phenomenon. It's growing in all corners of the world, and it is currently being analysed and tracked by the Global Education Monitoring Group within UNESCO. UNESCO, of course, stands for the Education, Scientific and Cultural Organisation. And they periodically, every few years, get out what they call the GEM report, which is the the, um, Global Education Monitoring Report. And the following is material from their initial report. Now, I'm going to quote it, and I suggest to you that what is perhaps of most interest to readers in this material is the conclusion of the authors that, and here I quote, 
Privatisation has been reported repeatedly to exacerbate school segregation, social stratification among schools and marginalisation of the most socioeconomically disadvantaged students. Private schooling presents thus a major challenge for policymakers and education planners across the globe. In spite of this, policy responses need to be informed by a context-sensitive understanding of this phenomenon. While regulation and oversight could be possible policy solutions to advance towards greater educational equity, such efforts might not work in any circumstances and they need to be tailored to the context if they're to be effective and sustainable over time. Now this group, and it's a group of academics, Antonio, Antoni Verger, Adrian Zaclacho and Clara Fontevilla, uh, these are international educationists, they are putting together a 2021 GEM report on non-state actors in education. And it's going to be a very important contribution to shedding more light, light on this very pressing issue. And because of the results of privatisation, back in 1964, the dogs predicted that this could happen in Australia and we have always opposed public subsidisation of private schools. Now, uh, I've, I've uh, put in quite a bit of information from this report from the GEMS people uh, and some of it is very interesting and I hope that you'll go to our website at www.adogs.info and have a look at it. But one of the most interesting sections of their report is under the heading, Why and How Does Education Privatisation Advance? And they have a table, an interesting table, called Paths Towards Privatisation. Now, the really interesting thing about this table is that Australia isn't mentioned. Uh, New Zealand is, but Australia would only come under the um, South East Asian uh, banner, I believe. But the path, one of the paths towards privatisation, and I'll just read them out, reshaping the role of the state in education. This is one way you have a privatisation in, in a country. You have drastic advancement as part of a structural state reform which is adopted by neoliberal governments and consolidated by succeeding centre-left administrations and this results in a quasi-market system where the state focuses on just the regulation and the monitoring of education and we've seen this in Australia haven't we and we've seen too that the regulation is just not working. You also have education privatisation in so-called social democratic welfare states which someone, some people might say Australia is. And in these states, like Sweden, Denmark, Norway and Finland, you've got pro-market reforms framed as part of a necessary modernisation of the welfare state in a globalised context. Then you have the scaling up of privatisations that you have in the United States of America, Canada, Colombia and Brazil. It's really, really, really being scaled up very, very uh, swiftly there with charter schools and uh, religious schools. But with this, you have an uneven but progressive alteration of the system through the authorisation and encouragement of new forms of private provision and management with your charter schools. Uh, they are publicly funded but privately run and they are often run to for profit. We are starting even in Australia with, for example, the Redham School in Sydney to get for-profit schools. Now, school choice, the uh, rhetoric of school choice is a guiding principle and there's the key contribution of non-state actors forming advocacy coalitions. So you've got uh, lobby groups with central governments demanding and getting money for these private schools. 
You also have de facto privatisation in low-income countries and you also have historical private-public partnerships in places like the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain and Argentina where the religious groups, particularly the Catholic Church, is very strong. You also have privatisation by way of catastrophes. When you have advanced cattle, this is advancement of privatisation catalyzed by natural disasters or violent conflicts. And you've had this in New Orleans, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Haiti, Guatemala and the Honduras and also in Iraq. So comparing Australia with some of these paths to privatisation is actually very interesting. We certainly fit some of the um, examples that I've given. So I recommend this research being done uh, by the UNESCO group. And Australia is very much in the middle of all of this. And dogs from 1964 are opposing it. So we are very interested in what is happening at the moment in the United States where there is a resistance. And I'm going to ask Dale to read to you from Diane Ravitch's book, uh, Slaying Goliath, about the resistance in America. But first, what about a little bit of music? ground at the Olympic Dam mine there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old frozen lizard, I really know, the mining company gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us. Uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time. You'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. 
if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love a bit of tinkling. It sort of sells the soul in the middle of all this horror that we have to deal with when it comes to education issues in Australia and around the world. But speaking of which, um, there is hope. Um, Diane Ravitch has written a book, and it's all about the revolution to come, which is a wonderful thing to talk about on community radio, because I love talking about the revolution to come, because, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be on the streets for sure. The kids are out. Um, it's about time for us grown-ups to go and follow them, I think. Um, but Diane Ravitch has written an interesting book because revolutions are around ideas. Mm. Ideas are a powerful thing. And we're going to share some of those with you today. As I say, Dale has something to share. Thanks, Robert. Yes, I've got, um, I'm reading from a chapter of Diane Ravitch's book entitled Slaying Goliath, the passionate resistance to the privatisation and the fight to save America's public schools. And this title's in chapter Meet the resistance. Who belongs to the resistance? Members of the resistance have some genuine connection to education as teachers, administrators, students, parents or grandparents of students, graduates of public schools, scholars, religious leaders who believe in the separation of church and state, citizens who recognise that public schools are an essential foundation stone of a democratic society. The resistance agrees on several central ideas. First, it opposes the privatisation of public schools. Second, it opposes the misuse and overuse of standardised testing. Third, it respects the teaching profession and believes that teachers and other school staff have appropriate professional compensation, should have appropriate professional compensation. Fourth, it wants public schools to have the resources needed for the children they enrol. Fifth, it wants schools to cultivate the joy of learning and teaching. Sixth, it places the needs of children and the value of knowledge above the whims and theories of politicians and philanthropists. Last, it understands that students' lives are influenced by the conditions outside the control of the school, including their access to good housing, medical care, nutrition and safe neighbourhoods. The resistance does not have access to vast reservoirs of cash. The resistance relies primarily on the volunteerism and individual donations of those who believe in public education and oppose privatisation. Almost everyone who works for the resistance does so without pay. I do not include here the staff of teachers' unions who are paid by the Jews of teachers, not corporations, billionaires, foundations or Wall Street. The number of foundations that support the resistance is in the single digits, led by the Schott Foundation for Public Education. This is truly a David versus Goliath matchup. If ever there was a mismatch, it is the contest between disruptors and the resistance. And yet, the resistance is winning the war. It is winning for two reasons. First, everything the disruptors have imposed upon, have imposed upon public schools has failed. Facts and evidence matter. The disruptors' policies have not produced stunning improvements for any district or state, nor even those they completely controlled, like Louisiana or New, Mex New Mexico or Florida or the District of Columbia or Milwaukee or, or Detroit. Disruptors boast about the test scores of specific charter chains, but none of the high-flying charter chains has ever successfully managed an entire school district. In 1999, the for-profit Edison Project took over a three-school district in Inkster, Michigan, and failed. And in 2001, Edison took over nine of the ten schools in Chester Upland in Pennsylvania, suspended nearly half the students, and then failed. The charter model works best when the schools choose the students they want and exclude or push out those they don't. 
some charters have been known to discourage students by failing to offer transportation or by requiring an essay or by requiring parents to contribute money to the school. Even when they admit students by lottery, they can discourage unwanted students, those with disabilities or low test scores, from enrolling by telling them that the school is not the right fit for them. They can shed students by repeatedly suspending them for behaviour issues, calling their mothers to conferences day after day and using other tactics to push them out. The only all-charter district in the nation is New Orleans, which is a below-average district in one of the lowest-performing states in the nation. The story of the disruption movement is a story of failed experiments on other people's children. The second... Second, the resistance is persistent and highly motivated. The resistance is powered not by money, but by passion and conviction. The resistance has what the disruptors do not, millions of allies willing to work for no pay. Its values and ideals are shared by millions of teachers and principals who work every day in American classrooms. It enjoys the support of millions of parents who oppose school closings and community disruption and who reject the narrow emphasis on standardised testing that is now written into federal law. The resistance is dedicated to the principle of public education as a common good, one that should not be handed off to entrepreneurs, for-profit corporations, corporate chains and amateurs. The resistance believes that educators should be professionals, that children should be treated as individuals, not data points, and that real real education cannot be measured by standardised tests. Yep, you got it there. That's it. That is the resistance. You've just described the dogs here in Australia. And That's a lot of other public education supporters throughout yep. Australia. Uh, parent groups. funding now, yes. Yep. Par- yes. Parents groups, um, various organisations that... And I'm going to put it... Actually, I'm going to iron up the stakes. What is happening in America, the privatisation and the charterisation of education is a de-civilising influence. It's as though we've given up. It's as though a generation of administrators, a generation of politicians, have said, oh, well, I'll just take the money. I'm going to give up on the idea that the next generation is going to be better educated and prepared than the last one. And you know what? That's exactly what's happened. During this fight for privatisation and charterisation in America and here in Australia, we have educated a generation of people that are less well-educated than the children that came before. It is just a simple fact. There's no arguing with it. This is a known thing. And people are still wandering around about how public-private partnerships going to do the business and how sort of if you get people taking personal responsibility for the education of themselves within educational hubs, that are run by international corporations which are themselves for profit, um, then it functions as a de-civilising influence. It is the decline of education on the planet. Mm. Um, Except it's not, because there's only certain countries that are doing this. Other countries aren't, aren't that stupid. There are plenty of people on the planet who live in countries which are not that stupid. Some, maybe they're around the Baltic. Maybe they're around the Mediterranean. Maybe they're around the, the, the South China Sea. But there are plenty of countries around the world that aren't buying any of this rubbish at all. Mm. They are putting a great deal of money into their public education systems, which are then supplemented by parents in terms of tutors and extracurricular opportunities, which are provided by families on a who's-got-the-most-money kind of basis. Because, quite frankly... If you think about it, parents want to, parents will very often want to have an advantage for their child. Whether it's a, an absolute advantage, that is, I'm moving to this country because their schools are better, or whether it's a relative advantage, which is as long as my child gets a better education than the child in the suburb next door, doesn't really matter to many parents. And certainly it's not something that they, that, that they wish to think about. But 
the privatisation process takes that instinct and creates a system, a private system that is essentially parasitic, which is what Dale was describing there. The problem is, of course, that uh, a lot of people are still prepared to say that the two systems can go together. Well, they can, so long as one isn't, isn't subsidised mm. to a greater extent even now mm. than the other. Mm. And... Um, Again and again, this problem comes up. You might see it on the drum or you might see it even on four corners. But at crucial points, they will not bite the bullet. I was watching the drum this week and a gentleman from Sydney, together with um, Parsi Salberg, is it, the bloke from Finland, they were talking about the problem. And the guy from Sydney University, a young, young Chinese boy, I think, said, well, private should be private. If they want to be private, then they should pay for it. And it was fascinating to see how the subject was immediately changed. Mm. They will not bite the bullet uh, if they want to go to lunch with the right people the next day. And I would very much like to say that from the point of view of the dogs, point, from the point of view of us here at the dogs, we have always had the policy since 1964. If you want to educate your child privately for a religious or even just straight out social segregation, if you want to separate your child out on the basis of their religion or social segregation, that, it, that, that does function, firstly, under the discrimination list. You can do that, but you pay for the privilege. That's not my business. If that is the decision you wish to make with your child, as long as what they are taught in the school is is, is part of a curriculum that makes sense, mm. which is to say as part of a standardised curriculum. I don't mind who you ensure that their close friends are. Mm. If you want to socially segregate your children, if you wish to pursue, uh, if you wish to pursue a relative advantage, mm. which is to say your child gets an advantage over another child, um, and you've got the money, there is a, there is a very long tradition of this. I mean, in, certainly in the English-speaking countries, it's called the class system, mm. um, and it's, it's supported in education systems. However, it's not supported by the taxpayer. It's not supported by the Commonwealth, mm. or should not be supported by the Commonwealth. That is a private business. And often, you know, combinations of religions and privilege go together in various networks. Um, quite frankly, that's not my business. And I resent the fact that it's been made my business. And Diane Ravitch is referring to a sort of corporate version of this old problem. Hmm. It gets down to the point that if your local school is not satisfactory to your needs, that in itself is a huge political and social problem. Your local member should sort that stuff out. If you're talking in terms of, oh, I couldn't possibly send my child to the local state school because I wouldn't send my dog there. If you were to say such a thing, you're actually talking about a significant problem for yourself and your children. Because if that is true, which it's almost certainly not, but if that is true or even perceived to be true, um, that's a solution to be solved today, uh, not tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I think that is at the heart of what, these, of what, these, of what this resistance is all about. It is a civilising influence. There are many older people on this planet saying, but, but this is just decivilising. This is, this, is, this is short-sighted. This is pointless. And it's now come to the point where we've been fighting for so long, we've seen the results. This generation of children in both America and Australia are less well-educated than the generation before. Whether your child has a relative advantage within that shrinking pool of knowledge is not actually the point of the dogs because we are always talking about our children not i'm sorry to say your particular child but having given such a terribly polemic ramp i think it's time to calm down with a bit of music Thank you. 
Members have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. We had a little skirt so there, so you can put your skirt so's down. Stop dancing, stop going crazy to all the music, and get back to listening to us here on the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools, and unfortunately, from time to time, we have to take ourselves very seriously, because we're dealing with serious issues. Um, those people who know me know that I am a very serious person all the time, and I'm going to talk about something actually, again, quite serious. I'm going to talk about freedom. I'm going to talk about freedom, and I'm not talking about red hat wearing freedom or freedom to bear children or arms or whatever. I'm talking about religious freedom, and unfortunately, um, I have to talk about religious freedom because religious freedom is an important aspect of their education system here in Australia. I don't think that should be, but it is. So, unfortunately, I have to take this seriously. I can't make any jokes about religion, um, and I don't really feel like it. However, um, there is a fellow called Michael Kirby who um, was the was a High Court judge. Um, he's actually a, a, a personal friend of Jean here on the Dogs Program, so I'm going to say what he said in the paper, and then Jean can perhaps interpret it because she knows the bloke. Um, anyway, this High Court judge has written something about the new Religious Freedom Bill. Now, the new Religious Freedom Bill, which is being put up by Christian Porter in the Federal Parliament, is a bit strange because there are a very large number of religious freedoms, uh, sorry, religious people who think it's a really bad idea. There are some religious people who think it's a really good idea. But what it is, is the unlearning of a lesson. And the unlearning of the lesson is that around about 300 years ago, a very large number of people got very upset about what religion was right, and they had a war. In fact, there was more than one. In fact, if you look in the history books or Google wars of religion, it's very definitely plural. And a lot of people died in the place where a lot of Australians came from, which is what we call Europe. Now, Europe in many ways is the foundation of many of our cultural touchstones and touch points. And of one of which is in Australia is that we are a secular country. You can go around and believe what you like. You can happily live in Australia free from persecution as a Scientologist. And if someone is rude to you and says, oh, you're funny, you're a Scientologist, um, yeah, that person can be pulled up. And if they keep going on about it, and on about it, and on about it, on about it, then they'll be called before the secular state and say, can you please stop going on about being rude to this poor Scientologist? or Calathumpian, or Catholic, or Anglican, or whatever it is. Because a secular state allows for all people to have freedom of expression within it. So why on earth are we coming up with a religious freedom bill? As Michael Kirby says, it's dangerous. He says, over the summer, the federal government released an amended bill of its proposed religious discrimination bill, designed to satisfy the many critics, of which I am one. This effort, according to Kirby, has failed. All Australians, whether they practice a religion, are lapsed in their religion or belong to the quickly swelling ranks of those declaring no religion, can be worse off on grounds of religious belief if this bill goes through, says Justice Kirby. He goes on to say, he says, this is not a bill that protects Australians from discrimination on religious grounds. Instead, it actively facilitates intolerance and will work to divide rather than unite Australians. Currently, Australians, quite rightly, that's me, not him, um, enjoy a great deal of freedom when it comes to religious belief, both the freedom to practice their religion and the freedom from the imposition of religious practice that they do not share. So I can't in Australia at the moment have come and said, right, you're going to have to be Jewish now, Otherwise, bad things. And I go, no, I don't. 
because this is Australia. I don't have to. But the anti-discrimination laws at the state and federal level protect people from discrimination based on not just their religion, but their ethnicity, their gender, their sexual orientation, as well as disability, age and, of course, religion. They also strike a balance in protecting the right of religious institutions to run their operations in accordance with their beliefs and to allow existing discrimination to be addressed. Alongside these laws, health and safety laws protect people from bullying in the workplace, which can often be the result of personal prejudice, but expressed in racial or religious terms. Now, I think I think he's doing a bit of a fudge there, because I think there are situations where things get a bit more complicated than that, but we'll continue. The proposed religious discrimination law would override all these existing state and federal laws. It would strip Australians of many of the rights that we currently enjoy, and indeed put the clock backwards to before, if you ask me, the wars of religion. So while the government's first draft was seriously unbalanced with the capacity to sustain a toxic atmosphere of nastiness and hostility, the second draft has swung the pendulum even further to support those whose religious belief they wish to use as a weapon against non-believers. This is something obsessive religious proponents demand, but it is not the best interests of everyone else who's not obsessively religious. Now, in the past few weeks, um, there has been a publicised case about a Victorian doctor refusing to prescribe contraception or advise about IVF to patients because of their religious belief. So this is a doctor not being a doctor and, 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 and talking about doctor things because they, it's against their religious belief to do so to a patient who's asking the question. Under this legislation, a range of health professionals, including doctors, nurses and pharmacists, would be empowered to deny treatment to those who did not share their religious beliefs. Peak medical bodies have rightly expressed alarm. The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners does not believe that religious protections for conscientious objections are needed. The Australian Medical Association has said the bill would create a conflict between their professional standards, the Medical Association, and federal legislation, confusing doctors by effectively undermining the role of the medical board under broader ethical codes. So if you're a medical practitioner, who is the person that is the arbiter of your, your actions as a medical professional? Is it your church or is it the medical practice board? And the answer is the second one. I'd like it that way. And the licence that this bill gives for discrimination does not end with the medical profession. It extends much further. A religious school could refuse to hire a gardener unless the candidate for the job produced a reference from the local priest as evidence of their faith. Women working for a boss who declares daily that divorce is a sin because women should submit to their husbands would have no avenue of complaint. And the list goes on. Um, I, this is Mr Kirby, or Dr Kirby I should say, um, is not someone who has abandoned his own personal religious beliefs. He is a religious person. He remains an Anglican, but he's deeply concerned about the potential impact on laws, of these laws, upon upon people that aren't Anglican, people that aren't this or people that aren't that. He's also, I think, uh, a patron of the Rationalist Society, isn't he? Yes, because you can be both rational and religious. But believe, I mean, I know many atheists would argue this point, but yeah, Justice Kirby is, is a living example about how this is possible. He's um, a patron of the Rationalist Society. Yes, he is, right. indeed. Yep. Now, most religious Australians actually don't want these rights. Most religious Australians seek a community at peace. Mm. So he is encouraged to see that a range of faith-based organisations have come out strongly in recent weeks against the bill for this very reason. Mm. This is religious organisations and people saying, we do not want these protections. They will create conflict mm. and we are people of peace. The principle that protects us all is the principle of secularism and is one of the most valuable constitutional gifts of our British heritage which goes back to the goes back to these wars because these wars stopped and I went oh look 
can we just fight about something else next time? This is just getting a bit silly about what, what God is right. And that in itself is secularism. That is to say that the state, the one who has the army, <laughs> okay, doesn't go around fighting about God's no more. Uh, the army is controlled by a secular state. Now, certainly in many wars since, God has been invoked on the side of right, um, by, by one side or the other, or, or, usually, or, or usually both simultaneously. <laughs> and I can't, I can't discuss that. I mean, that's not for me to talk about. First World War was like that. Oh, sec- well, Second World War more so, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that, is, that is, again, a question of personal belief. But the states themselves were in control of the army, not the archbishops or the popes. <laughs> Back to Justice Kirby's article, because this principle of secularisation is in fact one of the greatest and most valuable constitutional gifts that we'll be throwing away with this legislation. We, as Australians, should be vigilant to preserve it, and not erode its legacy by enacting laws to appease an extreme minority. And this is the point of view of many, many religious people, including people in this studio, because I know Jean is a deeply religious person. However, the supporting this bill is just nonsensical. Would you, would you, would you agree with my, oh, yes, me I, saying what you think, which is terrible, because you can say well, what you Well, there think. would be no need for any of this talk if back in 1981 the High Court had had the intestinal fortitude to um, find in the favour of the dog's case on section 116 on separation of church and state. The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. You might notice that I emphasised the word any. The High Court replaced the word any with the words a particular. So they were talking about the establishment of a particular religion. And it made a nonsense of the meaning of this very, very powerful religious liberty cause. And this is why we're now in the trouble that we are with so-called religious liberty. this legislation, Jane, even cuts through that. So not any, it's about a particular. If you have, for instance, someone of a particular religion who discriminates against a person of another particular religion, Say, no, I'm not going to employ you because I'm Christian and you're Muslim. Or I'm not going to employ you because I am Sikh and you are Catholic. Then at some point, a particular religion, doesn't matter which one, is going to get discriminated against. I mean, because religions, you know, the people, I said this before, the people are going to be using this the most will be religious people against probably other religious people because... In these situations, rationalists and atheists tend to keep their heads down. Not all religious people are forever peaceful. No, no, no. (laughs) Yes, 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 that's true. And yet, not all men, not all women, and certainly not all religious people. I have many religious friends who do not think this legislation is a good idea. In fact, truth tells, I don't know anyone who does, um, because I I don't hang out with religious extremists. Um, Justice Kirby, or ex-Justice Kirby, Michael, he concludes by saying... The government has indicated it will push ahead with the introduction of the bill while conducting further brief consultation. But the government should hear the chorus of opposition and abandon this ill-considered measure. If it does go ahead, it should only be in the context of a comprehensive charter of human rights where all rights of citizens are kept in balance and none, particularly religion, is privileged, which is what he's talking about. So, yeah, those are his words, worth listening to. Um, and it's nice to know that we still have states people, um, not, not, not just people like Jean, but people like Michael, who hold the civilised balance of freedom and peace in a place like Australia in high esteem. Because right. the one thing this bill's going to do is it's not going to lead to more peace. It's going to lead to people being very rude to each other and then getting very annoyed and no one being able to do anything about it. Both Michael and I had the privilege of going to a, a, a state school in Sydney called Fort Street. 
we were very privileged indeed. Mm, and large numbers of other children in Australia also have the privilege of going to state schools. And Rich and Robert will be telling us about a great state school. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. You've put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State schools. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Oh, I love this bit of the program. It's wonderful when you get to the end. Well, we've dealt with all the serious issues, and now I can just tell you some unadulterated good news because our great state school of the week this week is Bobbin. Yep, as in you get to in the song with the Bobbin. Bobbin Public School in the town of Bobbin in New South Wales. Now, Bobbin is a great place to send your kid to school because, Bob, well, Bobbin's a sad story than a happy story because Bobbin was burnt. The whole school, except for the library, was burnt to the ground in the latest bushfires. It's on the north coast of New South Wales. Um, it's up, oh, where can I say? I mean, I'm sure not many people know where Bobbin is, but if you know where Port Macquarie it is, sort of between there and Newcastle, inland a bit. Here's where the big fires were three months ago, like the early ones, because we forget now because we're in February and it's raining all over the place. But the biggest fires that have ever taken place in the forests of Australia the forests of Australia, um, things and, and places that don't normally burn, happened just a few months ago. And schools were burnt, towns were burnt, people were burnt. It was horrific. And one small town, little town of Bobbin, the school was gone. But it's not gone anymore. It's back. Open for school, the very first day of term on the 20th of January. There it was, bank, we're back, teachers, teacher back. I'd like to say teachers, it doesn't work that way in Bobbin. Teach er back, one single teacher and 15 kids, all rocked up. And it's got three portables and a library, so there's lots of places they can go and play and things they can do. Um, it is a primary school, so it's mixed class, obviously. Now, I'll tell you right now, of the, fift- of the 15 people, uh, 13 of them are girls, and so is the teacher. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of boys there, but you know what, that, makes, that just makes it more fun, I reckon. Socioeconomic status of this school, it's just average. You know, it's just, when I say average, no school is average. But there's not, there's a few rich kids and there's a few poor kids and there's a few kids in the middle that go, what are you talking about? I've got food on the table. And at the moment when it rains, I get a bit wet because guess what? My town was burnt out. But you know what? That's okay. We're coming back because it's worth coming back because the school's here already. Yep. You know how hard it is to get a tradie over Christmas break? 
pretty hard, but not in Bobbin. Nope. The tradies worked over the Christmas break. Make sure the school was put back together, ready to go. There's a centralised administration in Sydney that would have got those those buildings out there because you need a centralised administration. This is what the privatisation people want to do away with. Yep. Look, the Bob and Public School, um, it's just northwest of Taree, if that that helps you out, yeah, Um, lost all of its buildings except for the library. Since then... They've been working around the clock and they've succeeded. They were old asbestos riddle buildings as well, so that made the whole sort of clean up that much more complicated, but they still did it. They brought in some demountable buildings and they rebuilt all the pathways and the shelters and they made sure all the communications were put back together. Now, Sarah Parker, who is very gloriously called the acting principal, <laughs> but she's the teacher, acting principal Sarah Parker, um, she was there with 15 kids on the first day saying, let's go, let's learn. The whole community is watching the, the whole reconstruction. They were watching and saying, well, is this where we want to live? Do we give up? Do we go? No. There's a public school. There's a school here that will take our kids. Do you know how we know it's going to take our kids? Not because of the religious views they hold. The school's not going to take their kids because they're smart enough and they've done a test. The school's not going to take, take the kids because they, they think they might be a good fit. The school's going to take their kids because it's a state school, and that's what state schools do. And you are a good fit. You know why? Because you live here, and that's a good enough reason. Miss Parker said the whole community has actually really invested in this school. Everyone feels as though they own a bit of it. They've either been to it or they've sent their kids to it. To see it rebuilt from the ground up is really important part of the recovery of the town itself mm. because without the school the town is so much less mm. so I have to say look, I can tell you what the nap plan is okay, the nap plan's great, they're fine um, they're a bit above average actually if you can't learn at Bobbin, you can't learn so, mm. which is a little phrase I'm taking up these days You know, say, well, well what about this school, is it a good school I said, well if you can't learn there, you can't learn anywhere mm. and there are schools that have problems and Bobbin is not one of them how much does it cost? How much does it cost to have one teacher and 15 kids? Well, the answer is I don't care because those kids need a school and it is us as a civilised society, it is our duty to pay for that school to be there. It is our taxes and it is their right. Yep, it is their right. It's not their privilege. It is their right. And we um, don't want any charity either. Yeah, it could basically cost 25 grand per kid. That includes the rebuilding costs, actually. Parents' fees and charges through the year, around about 200 bucks. So if you can cover up a couple hundred bucks and you've got a bit of money, that's great. If you can't, well, there's fundraising, isn't there? And that's how the schools... That's a great state school. Often I talk about great state schools and you just describe what it is, and that's enough. It does a great job just within itself. But the school itself, before it was burnt down, and I'm sure now it's continuing on, their mission statement is just to be to be tolerant, to grow, and to learn for life. Those are the values of the school. It provides schools every every child has a computer, like they don't miss out on that sort of stuff. But the students, the parents, the staff, and people ex ex pupils and ex parents, they're still part of the act community that's involved with the school, they're not excluded because it's bobbin, right? And when it comes to, you know, managing behaviours, in which everyone goes, oh, state schools, everyone's badly behaved. Do you know who manages the behaviours? They all do, together. The kids, the parents, the teachers and the broader community. About what's, you know, what's an appropriate thing to do, what's an appropriate punishment. That's managed together. It's a collective thing, which you can do with 15 kids and a teacher. You can come to those collective arrangements where we are the bobbin kids. No one messes with us because we can sort ourselves out. Thank you very much. Do you know how we can do that? We can do that because we recover from the bushfires. And we'll keep going. But you've been listening to the Docs Program here on 3CR 855 on AM Dial. It has been wonderful to have your company. If you do want to check up on us, you can at our website at www.adogs.info or the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. But quite frankly, until I look forward to your company next week on 3CR here at the Dogs Program, 
It's bye for now.